This is Ashley Robbins, and you're listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. A Latin phrase worth knowing today is doom spiro spero, meaning while I breathe, I hope. Here's Jason Elam. My guest today is a prolific author, podcaster, and columnist. He's one of the co-hosts of the wildly popular Heretic Happy Hour podcast and the author of the newly released Jesus Unarmed, How the Prince of Peace Disarms Our Violence, which I believe may be his most important work to date. Welcome back to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, my good friend, Keith Giles. Oh, Jason, it's an honor to be here with you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to talk to you again, brother. Um, and first of all, how are you, my friend? Um, doing pretty good. Um, although, as I said before we hit record, I'm, uh, I'm currently sitting in, the, in my local library in one of the little study rooms because my internet went down in my house. And I was like, oh, crap, I have to talk to Jason. So I do my <laughs> laptop in the car and uh, drove over here. So hopefully this uh, this connection works great and we can have a good conversation together. Otherwise, I'm doing really good. We always have good conversations and I don't think it matters where you are. I appreciate your extra effort getting to the library just so we can do this online and record and share it with our friends. The, one of the things I wanted to do more than anything today was just check on you. I know you've had a really rough year. Yeah, it, thank you. Yeah, it, it's been... Well, yeah. I mean, since my dad died um, in August of last year, um, we only just had his memorial service August of this year. So we went for a year before we you know, were able to have the service. So that was, that's was been the hardest thing. You know, I think COVID has, has been challenging for everybody for various reasons. Um, I could say, though, I think overall, I'm, I, it's been an okay year. I mean, it's been actually in many other ways really good. Um, I was able to finish my book series. Uh, my boys are doing good, have jobs, you know, graduating college and getting settled and all that. And uh, Wendy and I are trying to get settled here in El Paso, but that's been hard too. Uh, I think we've, um, we have not connected here the way we were hoping we would. We haven't really found some really, you know, natural friendships and connections with, with people that kind of make it make sense for us, like why we're here. So we're still trying to figure that out as well. But yes, I guess it's been kind of um, good and bad, I guess, a little bit of a mix. I was talking to our mutual friend, Josh Lawson, yesterday. Mm -hmm. And of course, your name came up because you're the reason that Josh and I ever met in the first place. And uh, we were just kind of wondering out loud, are you still actively involved in house church right now in El Paso? Uh, Well, yeah, good question. No, I'm not, unfortunately, because, um, and that's kind of part of what I was saying, like, so when we first moved here, we were very hopeful we were going to start one. You know, we, we did one for 11 years in Southern California. We moved to Boise, Idaho for a year and almost immediately found, you know, two or three other couples that were just perfect. They were great. They were really excited about it. They, they just picked up on it immediately. It takes some people months or years to kind of like figure it out. And they were like, they just, they were just natural at it. It was so great. And um, we had wonderful community and connection with them. So living to El Paso, we had very high hopes. We're just going to do it again, right? And um, nope. <laughs> so we just have really had a hard time finding people here who are like-minded, who are even curious about this kind of stuff, you know? We did find one other couple who, curiously enough, are not from El Paso. They were like us. They're from uh, out of town. And um, they found us and they were like super excited, but then COVID hit. So, you know, we didn't meet in person. And then right right around the time we felt like, okay, maybe we could do this thing um, a few months ago, 
we had our first interest meeting where we invited a couple of people we thought might, you know, including this couple, but people we thought might be interested in doing house church. And as that couple who we were putting kind of all of our hopes in walked in the door, they said, oh, we're moving to Denver. You know, the husband had gotten a new job. So it was sort of over before it began. Which oh, was very no. sad. oh, that's awful. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, you know, because of that, it's been like, we've been like, okay, God, what is going on? You know, uh, we just haven't, we just haven't met people here in El Paso that it seems like, at least, you know, I don't mean to like paint the entire town, but just, let's just say that the connections we've made, the people we've met and the kind of feeling we're getting from sort of the, the vibe, um, kind of like in this part of El Paso that we're living in. It just feels like people here are not really open to anything new. It's sort of like in their minds, it feels like, you know, it isn't broken. We don't need to fix it. The status quo is great. Um, no one's even really curious. You know what I mean? Like when I talk about my books and, you know, hey, did you know the Bible doesn't really say this? And hey, did you know that this isn't really what Jesus said or blah, blah, blah? Um, I don't get the kind of reaction I expect. I don't get people leaning in and saying, wow, really? Tell me more. I get people looking at me like, why are you like that? Why are you rocking the boat? Like, what's wrong with the, you know, the, the good old, the good old stuff. So I just, um, it just feels more and more like, I don't know if this is really the place for us. It doesn't, doesn't feel right now after being here two years. Um, it's not feeling like this is going to be a place we're going to be able to put down some roots. So in the moment, uh, we're kind of praying about what's next and maybe in the next year or so we might, might end up moving again. Oh, wow. Is there anywhere that you have in mind to move to? Yeah, we're looking at the moment. Uh, my youngest son, uh, David, um, had never been in his life, never even visited in, uh, in his life, uh, Oregon. But just one day living in Southern California decided I'm moving to Oregon. So he quit his job, packed up his stuff, uh, got in his car. Wendy actually flew out there to help him. And he drove from Southern California to Oregon. Um, and that's where he lives now. And so he found a job. He's, he's got a place. And he loves it. And it turns out that a bunch of the people who are in our old house church from, from Orange County, California, um, several of them ended up there in Portland area also. And so he's now hanging out with them and we're very jealous. And we're like, wow, that just sounds great. Maybe we should move up to the Portland area. Um, at least there's people we know. Our son is there. Uh, a lot of people from our house church who ended up there. Uh, and they're all, of course, telling us, hey, you got to come up here. So that's kind of where we're looking. Now, whether or not we can pull it off, Financially, you know, I don't know, but uh, that's kind of at the moment where we're kind of looking at. Wow, that'd be a big change from El Paso, Texas to Portland. Oh, it would be. But, um, you know, I lived here before. I lived in El Paso for a long time before. And um, uh, and I know it's all flooding back to me why I left in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. No offense, El Paso. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's uh, my mom loves it here. And my mom is here, and um, we've been trying this past year to get her stabilized, right? And she's doing great, actually. She's doing really, really good. And she has a good support system here, good friends. Her neighbors all check on her and love her and care about her. And she has good friends that, you know, check up on her and do stuff with her and stuff. So we we would feel really comfortable if we left that she'd be in great hands. Um, but she, mm-hmm. she doesn't get it, right? Well, Wendy and I will talk about it, you know, that we're thinking about moving. And she's like, what's wrong with El Paso? And I'm like, that is a great question. I don't know how much time you have, <laughs> but I don't know what's wrong with El Paso, but there is something wrong with right. it. 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I've noticed that you seem to be speaking at a particular church there with some regularity. Yes. How does that feel for you after being a house church guy for so long? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, so first of all, I, I got to say, like, you know, I'm sorry, I kind of, it sounds kind of down and negative on El Paso. Overall, it kind of, that is our sense. But one of the shining bright spots for us here has been my friend, Neil Locke, who's the pastor of First Presbyterian Church here. I've known him for years. I knew him back when I was in college and he was in high school. And of course, it just turns out that, you know, fast forward 25, 30 years now, he's, uh, he's now the pastor of First Presbyterian Church. And he is the most open, you know, uh, welcoming person I you could possibly imagine. There's no other church in El Paso that would or has invited me to come and fill the pulpit. And, um, and, and every time he's invited me to come and speak at his church, and he said from day one, I'll ask him, you know, well, what do you want me to speak about? He'll say, whatever you want. And the first time he said that, I was like, Neil, you don't know what you're asking. Um, <laughs> when you say whatever I want, and, but he's serious. He genuinely means it. And so I have, I have been able, I have had total freedom to stand up in his pulpit and preach things that I know he doesn't believe and he doesn't, you know, support, but he's not against the idea. He's not against his, his congregation hearing new ideas. And he's, I've, I've had like three of my last books that were published here in El Paso. Uh, he's allowed me to host my book parties there and, you know, in, in their church. He's, you know, for free. He's just like, hey, I use the space. So he's been so kind to me and so good to me. So I've just been blessed that, you know, I've had an opportunity to speak, um, you know, to the congregation there. And, and they've been so welcoming and supportive, you know, even though I know I'm sometimes challenging them in certain ways. But I'm in no way tempted to go back to that kind of model of church. It's just, you know, like, for example, like I don't attend there. Uh, we don't go there otherwise unless, unless, you know, he's asked me to speak. So, yeah, I, I'm still very convinced on the house church model, but I've been at the same time really blessed by my friend Neil and his openness and his hospitality. And, you know, it's just his willingness to, to give me an opportunity to share some things that are on my mind and on my heart. Well, I think that's awesome. Um, when Josh and I were talking about that yesterday, he was mentioning that he had found himself pastoring a, an established church uh, up in Ohio for a season. And I asked him if that confirmed his leanings towards house church or helped him rethink those. And he felt like it, it only confirmed them. Yeah. So, uh, and I feel the same way. I mean, guest preaching in local, you know, for lack of a better term, establishment churches, institutional churches, really does confirm for me that there's nothing like sitting around the living room, you know, with just an open conversation. Yeah, I agree. An open flow. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I much prefer the, um, I mean, you know, I guess there's a place for it. You know, I, I guess where I've landed is that it's not, um, teaching isn't bad, right? I mean, sometimes people do need someone to stand up and speak and teach and, you know, explain some things. I mean, it's really, it's just really, in, in a way, it's sort of the the verbal version, the audio version of me writing a book, right? I'm, I'm uh, there's something I've learned and I want to share it with some other people. And so either I, I write it in a book or a blog or I stand up in, in front of people and talk about it for 20 minutes or whatever. And um, so that in itself isn't bad. There's nothing wrong with that. I guess for me, it's the, if that's all you ever do, if that's, if that is church for you, if that's the definition of church for you, it's not the definition of church for me. And, uh, and I don't feel like it's the New Testament definition of church. I think church is meant to be a conversation, um, not just one guy lecturing every week. So, um, 
again, so I think there's definitely a place for someone standing up once in a while and teaching something. But I, I much preferred that conversation either before or after that. Uh, I think that's really where people learn and grow and process stuff a lot better. And it becomes more, plus, you know, I, I, I feel like church is a family, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a performance. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you're talking about actually might be for those who care about such things, more biblical yeah. than what the typical church does on Sunday morning, right? Because back in the uh, New Testament times, you had a special events, right? Where Paul would come to town or whoever would come to town right. and they seem to be teaching sometimes late into the night. People fall asleep and fall out of the window to their death. Right. But then the believers were meeting house to house and sharing meals together as their normal flow was more conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you're right. That's exactly right. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a rarity if uh, there was an apostle who came into town and if he and if he did come into town, he might speak for a day or two, or for as long as he was he was there and teach and answer questions and blah blah blah. But he would leave, and then so ninety nine percent of the time, what was happening, like you said, was people sharing meals and sharing what each of them knew of Christ with one another. It's those one another's, right? It's those fifty eight one another's that are spoken of in the uh, New Testament. That's that's being practiced, and I think that's what's missing. Uh, in most of our churches today, there's no room for the one another's because it's basically just one guy who does all the talking and teaching and preaching and ministry and everything else, uh, maybe two or three guys. But, you know, yeah, I, I think that's what I miss is that one anothering where, because man, you know what? I've learned so much. I, I have grown so much from listening to the wisdom or the experience of Christ in other people, whether they're teenagers or adults or may, whether they're older than me or younger than me, men or women young or old, you know what I mean? I think uh, even if they don't, if they have very different theological assumptions than I have, I, e- that's even better, right? Because if, if, if people agree with me on everything, how, do, how am I ever going to learn? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if I say something and everyone just nods and says, yes, amen, then, oh, well, like I, I would prefer someone to go, well, but what about this? Or I've seen it a different way. Or, well, you know, I disagree. I think this other thing, that's, I think, where the iron sharpens iron and where we can really kind of grow and mature and uh, have have different ideas that can challenge us and stretch us and shape us and, and help us grow. So I, I really much more appreciate that. And like you said, I, I do think that is much more uh, of what we see the example in the New Testament and church history. Uh, that's the model. It's that first, what is it? First Corinthians 12 model, Paul, when he first uses that, the word of the metaphor of the body of Christ for the church, it's in that context. So to me, it's not, the church isn't really operating as a body or as the body of Christ, if it's not behaving the way Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12, where Jesus is the center and all of us are equally sharing, you know, uh, out of our experience of Christ with one another in different ways, ministering to one another in different ways, as the Spirit leads us. That, to me, is, that's church. Amen. You know, uh, you and I first connected right around the time the first book in the series of the Jesus Un series came out. And here we are talking in the aftermath of your release of the final book in that series, Jesus Unarmed. And, you know, every book in that series just built on, they built on each other, right? Mm-hmm. You, you started off with Jesus Untangled, which was such an important prophetic word for the country that we're in and the time that we're in. And you just built on that and built on that and built on that. And now it's like you have just confronted the chief demon in hell <laughs> with, with Jesus unarmed. 
What in the world made you decide to take on the violence in our culture? I got to say, honestly, it was my publisher. Um, <laughs> it was Ralph. He's a troublemaker, that Ralph. Ralph Melvindo, I got to say, so out, of these, out of the seven books in this series, two of these books are ones that I would not have written had, had my publisher not come to me and pretty much insisted that I write them. So the first one was in the series was the one on hell, Jesus Undefeated, where he wanted me to write a book about universal reconciliation. And I said, well, okay, if I do that, I'm going to write a book about the three views of hell and then also about reconciliation. And so I'm really glad I did that because I, that book is, I'm very proud of that book. And there's so many people have told me that's really helped them understand, uh, the doctrine of hell and universal reconciliation and all that. So thank you, Ralph, for that one. And then I was, I felt like after I wrote Jesus Unforsaken, which was about penal substitutionary atonement theory and debunking that whole nonsense, um, about the atonement and everything, I, I was personally done. I felt like, okay, I did everything I wanted to do. And, uh, but Ralph, my publisher again, came to me and said, you know, Keith, you've always been someone who stood up for nonviolence. You know, I've been, he's right. I've been blogging about this topic for 20 years. And, um, he goes, you know, you really should write a book in this series. And he even suggested the title, Jesus Unarmed, and, um, and the, and the cover and all that. And I was like, well, I guess you're right. I guess I, I probably shouldn't, I shouldn't walk away from the series without writing a book answering, you know, this sort of question of nonviolence. Cause I, I allude to it in my other books, but I had never really just written an entire book on the topic. And, um, we can talk a little bit about more about writing that book uh, as well. But, um, that's where, where it came from was gen, was basically my, my publisher putting a bug in my ear and then not letting me, <laughs> not letting me make it a six part series. It had to be a seven part series. Yeah. The Keith Giles and Jesus Unarmed is really the Keith Giles that I got to know at the Jesus and Nonviolence event in Portsmouth, Ohio, a few years back. And so I've been waiting for this book. So I'm grateful that Ralph pushed you uh, to write everything down because this is a huge part of who you are to me. And uh, it seems like just a huge part of, of your pattern of following Jesus is nonviolence. Mm -hmm. What's the reaction been? It's been out for a little over a month now, I think. Yeah. Oh, first of all, thanks for mentioning that event because like, it's funny because that was with Josh Lawson. We were just talking about Josh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was a wonderful event. That was such a beautiful event. Josh Lawson and I put together this thing uh, in Ohio and um, about following Jesus in nonviolence. And we, he and I both presented on that. Uh, we had some wonderful conversations, uh, challenging conversations. I remember. Uh, several people, uh, but genuine challenges. They weren't just sort of coming from a place of sort of prejudice against the topic, like per people that were really struggling with, how do I forgive this person? How do I love this person? Um, how do I, how do I follow Jesus into this sort of nonviolent way of life? And it was such a beautiful event. I was so grateful for that. And, um, yeah. So, yeah, the, um, this whole topic is one that I've been writing about and talking about a long time, Jason. I, I guess what I should say, and this is part of my own personal story, right? Uh, people, if people do know my story a little bit, I talked about it in Jesus Untangled, which was the first book in the series. But, you know, like before my deconstruction process, you know, I was, I grew up, grew up in Texas, member of the NRA, uh, straight ticket Republican, uh, had a whole bunch of guns. Um, you know, like uh, all my heroes carried guns. I write about this in the book. You know, I realized looking back, like all of my heroes as a young boy growing up had guns, you know, Jim West and, Marshall Dillon and Captain Kirk and Starsky and Hutch and all those guys, like every, everyone, everyone I looked up to had a gun or a weapon of some kind. And so 
I think the more I started following Jesus and taking Jesus seriously, the more I started recognizing that, yeah, I, I kind of needed to leave my weapons behind and needed to, to step away from that way of thinking, of this redemptive violence way of thinking. So it's sort of like, I guess, this subject is interesting or, or I'm passionate about the subject, because, not, not because I'm not a violent person, but because I have been a violent person in my ways of thinking most of my life. And it's, it's recognizing that Jesus, what Jesus, I believe, wants to do is part of my transformation in, into the image of Christ and to be more Christ-like involves becoming someone who follows the path of peace. And um, I, I have um, been on this process ever since of selling my guns, getting rid of my weapons, um, really allowing the Holy Spirit to uh, just kind of do some work in my own heart and life about the ways that I have had the ways that I've treated violence, not only as a way of solving problems, you know, like sort of like falling into that redemptive violence way of thinking, even, even as far as like parenting, right? The idea that to discipline my children, I have to hit them. And even as far as like my, the way I see entertainment, right? Like I write about in the book, um, I went through a season where I was suddenly convicted that even though I was moving in this direction of nonviolence and I'd, uh, I'd written about it and I'd even started this thing called Passive Fight Club with some friends of mine in Southern California, which was so cool. Uh, so it was a wonderful little community we had built there following Jesus into nonviolence. I, even with all of that, I was convicted that I was still sort of enjoying entertainment. Uh, I was turning to violence as a form of entertainment, as a way of sort of relaxing and blowing off steam and, you know, playing my Xbox and playing a game like Fallout uh, 3, where the whole point of the game is to blow people's heads off and, you know, kill as many people as you can and survive the wastelands and all that stuff. And it was like, I just reached a point where I was like, um, if I'm really someone who's embracing nonviolence, I don't know that I want to have room in my mind and in my heart for even that kind of violence, you know? And, and again, I, I say that in the book. I write about that and I tell that story, but not as, not as sort of like a, a condemnation or a prohibition, like you shouldn't do that either. I'm just telling you this, this is where I'm at in the process I went through. And I think everybody has to wrestle with these questions individually. And I'm, hopefully that's what the book allows people to do is to, just think about what Jesus is saying and can you follow Jesus into this path of peace, you know, consistently? And are you doing it in a way that is really being true to who Jesus was and who Jesus uh, has calling, is calling us to be? How do you respond to somebody who reads your book and says, you know what, that's great. I love Jesus and nonviolence is great to talk about. And I think we should all probably be a little more nonviolent. And that's great for Gandhi and for Martin Luther King. But I live in the real world and Jesus wants me to have a gun to protect my family and my stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, I would say God bless you, I guess, because I, I know that feeling. And I, I would say, yep, I, I've, I have been there. I, and I've, I believe those things probably for the same reasons that you would believe them. But here's something that really convicted me when I was thinking that way. And so I guess if I was talking to someone, if I really was, Jason, talking to someone like that, uh, and someone really said that to me across the table, I would try to find a way with as much grace as I possibly could to just share what I noticed, which was that when Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, uh, he says, you know, if you only love those who love you in return, what credit is that to you? Don't the unbelievers do that? Don't the pagans do that? So, you know, if you... 
you know, we don't want to be that way, right? We want to be, we're called to something higher and better, Jesus says, right? So, you know, we're called to the kind of love that loves not only those who love us in return, which is just the common, ordinary kind of love everyone has. You know, Jesus' followers are called to love everyone, even their enemies. And so, you know, in the typical scenarios of like, I need a gun to protect my family, using your gun to kill the intruder is uh, an example of only loving those who love you in return. Because you don't love the, the person, you know, in your house who's not supposed to be there. You love your family. And so on one level, we can look at that and say, well, that's the way it should be. And that's good and noble. I would say, well, I, I think Jesus actually looks at that kind of love and says, nope, there's nothing special about that. Um, that's pretty common, ordinary kind of stuff. You know, maybe what we're called into is something a little more extraordinary, a little more radical. It's going to involve a little bit more uh, creativity and like, okay, if I don't use violence now against this person uh, to protect my family, then what would I do? Um, like quite often what I'll do is in those little scenarios of protecting your family from an intruder say, what if the person, you know, who was threatening your family was your own child? You know, what if they were angry or upset or having some kind of emotional or mental, psychological sort of episode and um, they were out of control and had a knife or a gun and they were threatening your wife or your other children or someone else you love? Would you be so quick to grab your gun and blow their brains out? You know, I, I don't think so. I think if you love someone, you don't kill them. I think if you love your children, you don't kill your children. If you love your spouse, you don't kill your spouse. And so... Again, this is what Jesus wants us to stop and, and consider, and not just for ourselves. I mean, I think it's it's recognizing, you know, there's, again, there's this consistent thread throughout the Gospels, right? Even when Jesus says that, that whole thing about loving your enemy and turning their cheek, blessing them or curse you, he gives a reason why. He says, because it's what God does. And if you want to be children of your Father in heaven, then you would do the things your father does. And, and there's what God does. God blesses those who love him and those who hate him. And so we can, we're called to be like our heavenly father, to live in this different way. Um, and so, you know, it's also, and I'll point out in the book, the fact that the irony of like this way of thinking of like, oh, no, 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 I need to, I need to have a weapon and protect my family if somebody try to come to my house and, and uh, you know, come and get us, come after us, I would have to kill them. And it's like, if the early church thought that way, they would have killed Saul of Tarsus when he knocked on their door. And so he never would have encountered Christ on the road. Uh, he never would have heard the voice of Jesus calling him to something better. And he never would have, we, you know, we would never have uh, had the benefit of like half of our New Testament or most of our New Testament uh, because he would have been dead. He wouldn't have had a chance to be transformed by Christ and, and, uh, and write the beautiful things that he wrote. So, you know, again, this is the, this is the story, I think a pretty basic, simple story we see in the New Testament. This is the concept that, the, that Jesus gave to us, that, that the apostles understood, the early church for about 300 years uh, understood and followed. And, um, and the fruit of it is beautiful. It's a transformative um, way of living and loving and treating other people. It's an extreme level of love and mercy, even to the, even to the one coming after you, even to your enemy or your oppressor. That, that disarms them, that transforms them, um, and allows the kingdom of God and the love of Christ to transform them, uh, again, like it did with Saul of Tarsus, to transform them into someone who becomes one of the greatest apostles of our faith and, 
receives revelation that sets even more people free. So um, that's a long answer to your question. But uh, I just think that, you know, if those are my options, like I need a gun to kill the person that protects my family. Well, that story ends very ugly and bloody and sad and tragic. The, the story of I don't use a weapon, I instead respond with love and mercy and the love of Christ and, and, and the kingdom breaks in and transformation takes place. That story has a much better ending. And I just, I know how I want to live. I know the story I want to live out. And I, I just felt like this is, the, this is the story Jesus is calling us to walk out in our own lives. How do you think we got to the point in American Christianity that churches now have their own police forces, mm. uh, conservative Christian families posing with machine guns for their Christmas cards? Um, how did we get so entangled with violence? Do you think our theology has anything to do with that? Absolutely. Oh, it totally does. I mean, again, this is why I had to write a book about Jesus being a nonviolent Messiah who calls his followers into nonviolence. Because, you know, I, I often will jokingly say, I feel like my ministry is introducing Christians to Jesus. And it's because of this kind of a thing. It's because we have, our theology has been so twisted and entangled with all these other things that we, excuse me, we've lost sight of the real Jesus. We 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 don't see that Jesus who's nonviolent. We don't we don't hear that Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we we've, we've created a version of Jesus that is pro uh, military, pro empire, pro government. Um, he stands on the side of those in power. It, it's it's just really sad to me how how it's how it has happened. But I mean, when you say how do we get here? Well, sadly, I think the, the answer to that question is. Unfortunately, as it is with probably a lot of the things that, I, that I've written about in my other books, the Emperor Constantine, uh, I think, came up with a really good strategy for co-opting the Jesus movement and changing it from uh, a movement that was about enemy love, that was about you know opposing the the empire, opposing the, the, the state and the ways of the world, and he found a way to twist it into something that suddenly was carrying the banner of the empire, that carried the sword of the empire, and that fought on the side and for the interests of the empire. And, uh, and that's the cause of not only this, you know, violent idea of Jesus, this retributive violence idea of Jesus, but also the entanglement of the, the church with the state, which again, we're, we still suffer from that to this very day. Um, and it's crept into even the way we do church. We were talking a little bit about this, you know, sort of, the way church nowadays is, you know, a guy stands up in front of everybody and gives a speech and people show up and put their ties in the basket and go home and, uh, you know, sit in rows facing forward. Well, all of that is also stuff that Constantine helped to promote as well. So like uh, uh, a lot of times I know people are like, oh, it's all Constantine's fault. You know, he's the, he's the giant scapegoat for, for uh, Christianity. But it's the truth. I just the other day watched a really fascinating documentary about uh, Constantine, showing even more stuff that I had not realized about uh, Constantine and, and really the, the strategy, the, the, the intentional strategy that he and Eusebius kind of conspired together to do exactly this, to get the bishops of his time on, on the same page with him. And it, and it worked in his time, and, and it's been a pattern that has been followed ever since that this is the way that um, that the church has become entangled 
with the state. The true Jesus, the true face of Jesus has been lost. And that's why I've got really, I think probably most of the books in my Jesus on series are trying to get us back to sort of a, uh, a pre-Constantinian uh, form of Christianity. You know, I, 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 people call me a progressive and I say, no, I don't, I'm not a progressive. I'm a regressive. I don't want to progress forward. I want us to go back. I think we need to go back to a time when we were following Jesus, the words of Jesus. We were following the way of Christ. And if we do that, if we could go back to that, then we would be people who separated ourselves from the state. Uh, we would be people that practice these one another's in community with one another. We would be people that uh, refuse to do violence to anyone, who were committed to loving everyone around us, even those who oppressed us and opposed us. To me, that's Christianity. And, and what we have today it has the name of Jesus on it, but Jesus has become a minor character in this religion uh, that has his name on it. But it's not really, if you really drill down and look at it, it's not very Jesus-y. It's not very Jesus-based. It's, it's based on a whole lot of other things. America itself seemed to have been born out of violence and, uh, and, and rebellion against the crown, obviously. Uh, the American church seems to have uh, sanctioned that throughout its history. Is it possible to untangle the American church from its violence? Or are we just absolutely addicted to it at this point? And, 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 and beyond that, can the American church exist without violence? Can America exist without violence? <laughs> well, those are very different questions. Yeah, I, well, so I, I absolutely believe that the church can do it. Um, because the beautiful thing is that, you know, even from the time of Constantine, when this sort of... Um, entanglement started to happen, there were, there were certain Christian uh, communities who, who said no, who resisted, right? So we have the Desert Fathers, the Desert Mothers, we have, you know, all, all through, we can see the the Anabaptists, you know, today we have like Quakers and Mennonites. And um, so there are, they're not the, they're not the largest denominations, they're not the, the, the largest communities of, of Christian followers, but they are still there. Thank God they are there. So Christianity does continue to exist uh, in this ways I'm talking about. Uh, it's not. It's not again. They, they're not the, typically the, the kinds of Christians who own the television stations or the radio uh, stations um, or, or the publishing houses. So you know they're not. They're not the, the most common things we see when we flip to the radio dial or go through the TV channels or what have you. But they're there. So thank God there are. Uh, minority voices within the Christian church who do still follow Jesus in this way, refuse to do violence, refuse to be entangled with the state, uh, continue to, you know, gather in ways that are much closer to the first Corinthians uh, 12 model and that kind of a thing. So there's hope for that, for me, at least anyway. I think if they can see it, and we're probably talking about several million Christians, right, that are that are out there that are doing this and practicing this, um, on a regular basis. So there is still hope that this could, could this could catch on. But only if, you know, the, the Christians who are, who are unfamiliar with this uh, are, are kind of like wake up and realize this. Again, this is the reason why I've written my book, but thankfully there's many other books out there, many other voices out there. I'm very grateful for all these voices. I just the other day did a little webinar with uh, Shane Claiborne and Brad Jerzak and Derek Flood um, and, you know, they are amazing voices, uh, and there's so many others out there, Greg Boyd and so many others. So 
um, Brian Zahn. My gosh, I could just go down the list. There, there are many, many other voices out there. And I, and I think even this deconstruction movement that we're seeing is, is part of that. Like, you know, I feel like, I feel like this deconstruction thing is a move of the Holy Spirit. It is a revival. People don't want to see it this way, but I think it's, it's absolutely a spiritual revival because these people are seeking Jesus. They're seeking truth. Uh, they, they want to know, they want to know God, uh, in a real way. And to do that, they have to jettison all the toxic garbage and junk and, you know, theology and stuff that man has uh, globbed onto Jesus. This is the end of my whole Jesus on series is about pulling all these things away so we can clearly get to see Jesus. And I think that's what the deconstruction movement is doing for us. So that also gives me a lot of hope. Whether or not America, let's say just as a nation, will ever get over violence, I'll just say I don't think so. I have very uh, much less faith for that. And as you said, it's because... We were born in violence. If you look at the history of our nation, we've always used violence to solve our problems, whether it was within the colonies. People don't know this, but if you, if you study early American history, you know, you see, um, like Puritans killing Quakers, Christians killing Christians, right? In the colonies because they disagree with each other's theology. They were hanging people because they weren't preaching gospel, the gospel the right way, or they wouldn't stop preaching the gospel that the, the other people didn't agree with. And so, um, I mean, it's from the beginning. It's the beginning of the DNA of our nation is violent. Violence against other Christians, violence against Native Americans. We've solved all of our major problems in, in, our, in our history of our nation through violence. Like, whereas, you know, the United Kingdom, for example, William Wilberforce was instrumental as a Christian. And it took him a long time, but he, he eventually abolished slavery without a civil war. But America, uh, we abolished slavery, but we had to kill a whole bunch of, you know, the, the worst war in our history. We had to kill our own people. We had to, brothers killed brothers um, on the battlefield in a civil war to solve the problem of slavery. You know, on and on and on. You can just go through our history and see we have most of the time we've solved our problems, quote unquote, solved our problems with violence. And um, to this day, right, the military budget of the United States of America is uh, more than what the other ten, other ten nations around us, the next the next ten nations you know, in size, uh, spend on, on the military combined, right? It's what America spends on their military and, and it keeps getting increased, right? Trump increased Obama's military budget, but Biden just increased Trump's military budget. It just keeps going up and up and up. And so we prioritize violence. We prioritize warfare. Yeah. I, I just can't see, I can't even imagine what it would take for America as a nation to wake up and say, this is stupid and wrong and we're, we're going to turn, you know, turn around completely and go the other way. Uh, I would love for that to happen, but I just can't even imagine what it would take for America to say, you know what, we're going to take, even if we just took half of our budget that we spent on the military and instead spent that on education and healthcare and, um, you know, all these other things or infrastructure, Poverty, like, oh my gosh, we could solve those problems and still have the biggest military the world has ever known. But we probably won't do that. Right. You know, I'm afraid, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm afraid that America is going to have to lose yes. uh, some, some big battles uh, in order to start thinking outside the box when it comes to our violence. Uh, we, we don't really think about alternatives to violence until violence isn't getting us what we want. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right on that side too. Like, um, 
it's also though like I, like I don't believe America is a Christian nation, but if we were a Christian nation, here's what I think a Christian nation would do: they would look at let's even just the last five or six wars we have been in, and and like let's look at Afghanistan, right? Mm-hmm. Trillions of dollars we we spent, in, you know what what. What were we there? 10 years, 20 years? Some ridiculous amount of time. Yeah, 20 years. 20 yeah. years we were there. So, okay, 20 years of time, trillions of dollars spent. Okay, the next time there's a conflict with another nation or some issue with another, another quote-unquote, perceived enemy in the world, in another part of the world, let's take that same amount of money and let's go to that nation and instead of going to war with them and killing their children and bombing their houses, we said, you know what? We're going we're gonna to build uh, clean water uh, for you, right? Infrastructure for you. We're going to uh, build a, a reliable uh, uh, electricity grid for you. We're going to build uh, schools and uh, help with your education system. We're going to build hospitals so your healthcare is better. And th- that nation would look at us and say, wow, what are you doing? Look how much you've blessed us. This is beautiful. I tell you what, we wouldn't even have to spend as much as we've spent on the war. We probably spend even a third of what we spent on the war and we could probably do all those things. And that nation would be our ally. They'd be our friend. They would love us. None of our soldiers, none of our sons and daughters would have to die. And the world would be a better place. And I just think that's a much wiser thing to do. I just wish we would wake up and realize that. I mean, like that we would, it would be better for America and it would be better for those other nations. We would truly be perceived as a nation that, that quote unquote was a Christian or Christ-like nation because we were using our, our resources to help and strengthen and bless um, nations that were suffering. And how could that not be good for America? I think all those nations would be like, America, those guys are awesome. Oh, we would, we love those guys, right? We'd do anything for America. How would that, that would just be the greatest, the greatest uh, investment we could possibly make in the nations of, uh, of the world. And who knows? It might catch on, right? China might go, Hey, what, what are those Americans doing? Hey, maybe we should do that too. Well, that would be great. What if we did that? Uh, but the thing is, we could do that. And that would be wonderful. I just, um, I think America is still convinced that violence works and that violence, uh, redemptive violence is still something that, uh, that works, even though the, 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 uh, the research shows otherwise. In my book, I, I have a whole lot of research about nonviolence and how it's 90% more effective than violence. Um, so, yeah, you know, even though the, the research is on our side that nonviolence works, I just don't know that w- what it would take. Maybe you're right. Maybe it would take some huge defeat. But at that point, America probably wouldn't be an empire anymore. Uh, we would be very humbled. And uh, I don't know. I'm not even sure at that point would still not believe that what we should do is uh, grab some weapons. Retaliate. Yeah, retaliate, yeah. yeah. Would you uh, read us a passage from Jesus Unarmed? Yeah, I, I guess I can do that. Um, I guess I'll read a little bit from my introduction. Uh, this is the introduction to Jesus Unarmed. So I begin with a quote, uh, two quotes actually. I'll just read the one, I'll read one of the quotes just for time. Uh, the first quote at the introduction says this, It is only when a mosquito lands on his testicles that a man realizes there is always a way to solve problems without using violence. Uh, That's from Confucius. As far back as I can remember, all of my heroes carried guns. Marshall Dillon on Gunsmoke, James West on the Wild Wild West, John Wayne, even Captain Kirk. They were always ready to respond with violence whenever necessary. And it seemed as if it was always necessary. Each and every week, I tuned into my favorite television shows. Early on, I got the message. 
good guys use violence to stop the bad guys and protect the innocent. Or as it has been communicated in recent times, the only thing that can stop a bad man with a gun is a good man with a gun. This myth of redemptive violence runs deep in our American psyche. We use violence to earn our independence from Britain. We use violence to end the practice of slavery. In fact, without at least some form of violence, almost nothing in U.S. history has ever been accomplished. Since 1776, America has been at war for 222 years out of 239, or approximately 93% of our history. Simply put, we are a violent nation. So it's hardly any wonder that our heroes are violent men who carry weapons and overcome evil using deadly force whenever necessary. It's in our DNA as a nation. We are addicted to violence. We are convinced that violence can be redemptive and restorative. In fact, we are so convinced of this that we find it very difficult to believe that God is nonviolent or that Jesus would want us to behave nonviolently. I can remember the first time this notion of nonviolence ever entered my mind. As a young boy who loved watching television in the 70s, shows like Starsky and Hutch, Mannix and SWAT, I came across a rather odd detective show starring George Papard called Banachek. What set this show apart from every single other cop show on television was the fact that the main character never carried a gun, ever. This really shocked me. Suddenly, I began to consider the possibility that it was actually possible to overcome evil without a weapon of any kind. Not only that, it might even take a stronger man, a more brave and courageous one, without holding a gun or a knife or anything at all, other than a sense of justice and a desire to expose the darkness using only the light of truth. Still, as paradigm-shifting as it was for my young mind to ponder these things, I never stopped believing in the power of redemptive violence. In fact, I was always running around playing cowboys and Indians or cops and robbers. Most of my favorite toys were handguns or rifles. I can remember having a 357 Magnum gun, just like Hutch used on Starskin Hutch, and a snub-nosed 38 with a real metal cylinder that rotated and fired caps, just like the one used by Beretta, and a flintlock pistol and rifle set, just like Davy Crockett used, and a machine gun, just like Elliot Ness used, and even an official Star Trek phaser pistol, just like the one Captain Kirk had. Truth be told, I was almost never found without a toy gun or three somewhere on my person. I kept a pistol on my sock under my boots and another pistol on the back of my waistband and yet a third one under my armpit in a makeshift holster I had rigged inside my jacket. At five years old, I was deadly. More than once, I got caught carrying a toy gun like this. The worst time was when we were about to board an airplane and I had to admit to my dad I had a realistic-looking handgun in my boot. When he showed it to the TSA officer, they nearly tackled my dad to the ground because it looked so real. Then they confiscated it and I watched them melt it inside a microwave behind the desk to destroy it. Of course, when we got to where we were going, we swung by the toy store to replace my revolver with one that looked just like it. Looking back on my childhood, I can see why so many of us today are enamored with the idea that guns are what good guys need to stop the bad guys. Between every toy commercial, TV show, movie, comic, and book I've ever read, the message is reinforced over and over again. Violence is necessary to protect us from evil. Case closed. No question. End of story. But... Is it the end of the story? Is it really true that the more guns we have, the safer we are from evil, violence, and crime? Is violence the most effective tool we have? Is it really true that we could make the world a better place by just killing enough bad people? There was a time in my life when I would have answered yes to every one of those questions above. Now, I'm not so sure. Why? Well, mostly because of Jesus and his example and his teaching. 
but also because of the overwhelming evidence we have that demonstrates to us that redemptive violence is not only not the answer, it's actually part of the problem. In fact, it might actually be the problem we need to solve before we can advance as a species and move beyond the Stone Age. Thank you so much. The author is Keith Giles. The book is Jesus Unarmed, How the Prince of Peace Disarms Our Violence. Keith, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us about this important subject today. Jason, love you, man. I thank you so much for giving me a chance to share this, uh, all these uh, ideas and thoughts about following Jesus. Thank you for being a good friend, man. I love you. Love you. Um, Talk to us before you go about the event coming up in Nashville. I want folks to hear about that and have a chance to be a part of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah, so um, I'm doing this event. It's called Awaken uh, 2022 um, in Nashville. Actually, Choir Publishing is sponsoring the event. And um, yeah, it's in Nashville at a wonderful church called Sparrow Day, S-P-E-R-O-D-E-I. Don't, I don't know what it means, something in Latin, but it's a wonderful church there that's hosting us. Um, I'll be sharing along with uh, Jim Palmer. December Rose will also be speaking. Todd Vick, Michelle Collins, Derek Webb will be uh, performing uh, musically. We're also, I think I'm going to get him on a panel, at least uh, I'm hoping to. And um, Brandon Dragon. And so it's going to be a great event. I mean, I just can't even believe all the amazing people that have agreed to come and share and speak at the event. Um, so as you can tell, probably from the lineup, it is focused on deconstruction. We're going to also talk about reconstructing our faith and uh, how do we move from deconstruction into reconstruction. And all of those people are more than capable of helping us process that and think through uh, all of those things. And so I'm really excited about it. It'll be a Friday evening and all day Saturday. It's March 18th and 19th. And um, yeah, if anybody would like to uh, register, I think it's right now the early bird special is still uh, $99 uh, to register for the event. And um, you can find it on Eventbrite, uh, or I guess you could just you know, follow me on Facebook or Twitter or on my blog, keithgiles.com, and uh, you'll find uh, uh, information about it there. All right, friends, you can find a link to that event and to uh, Keith's Facebook and Instagram and Twitter accounts, as well as his website, his Patheos column, and more. We're also going to have a link to the book, Jesus Unarmed, and I hope that you will get a copy of it. It's fantastic. I I really do think Keith saved the best for last, even if it was his publisher's idea. (laughs) Keith, brother, I love you. Thanks so much for being with me today. Love you, Jason. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. If you found it meaningful, please rate and review the show on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. Join the conversation by following the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or joining our listener-exclusive Messy Conversations group on Facebook. Finally, check out Jason's weekly Pathios column at MessySpirituality.org. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with another new episode.